All right, the gang is back. We're still working from home, but we have a number of good topics to talk about today. We're gonna talk about one company that's finding a way to do just fine during the pandemic, but our golf course is faring as well. There might be foot traffic, but does that mean they're making money? This is episode number 37 of No Putts Given. Let's get it. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. All right, the gang is back. I'm here with all the guys, of course, in their hats per usual. We've got Adam, Tony, Chris, and Harry here. All You're actually working from home this week instead of in the studio. Yeah. So, guys, welcome back. How are we doing? Solid. Yeah. Good to see you guys got the seventh graders on the bus uh, headphone situation going on. I like that. Yeah. We're going back in time. We'll have to see if we can find a headphone splitter. You guys but... sharing that new Drake, that new Drake album? You guys listen to that one? <laughs> that we're, wipe, we're wiping them down so we don't get any earwax or any ear infections. Yeah. So we're good to go. What did you listen to in seventh grade? I'm trying to think. I was in nightclubs probably in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what boy band were you listening to over there? Me? Oh, no, 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 Harry. Yeah, probably Westlife. I think Westlife was pretty big. Blue or InSync. I think there's another one. You don't know these people. All these bands. Yeah. Nobody in well, America has heard of InSync. That's, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so golf stuff. Guys, we at the top of the show mentioned a company that's finding a way to make it work through the pandemic. Adam, how is PXG doing? Because you talked to somebody on the inside that says they're having a great month. First, they yesterday released a prototype driver that was priced below industry prices for you know non-prototype drivers, right? So they they came out with what, yeah, at four ninety five, what might be the next generation driver for PHG, but right now is a true prototype. Um, they also have their driver right now, uh, currently their current driver on sale for two ninety five, which I don't think. People know a lot of people know that, but for those that do, a lot of people have obviously taken advantage of it. Uh, from what I've heard, they've had their best month so far. And that PXG pricing model during the pandemic seems to be something that they found kind of a sweet spot with, right? And I also think they have a distribution model advantage that allows them to do that over a lot of the other companies that rely on the retail distribution channel. Uh, where there's something called map pricing, minimum advertised pricing. So more control of your own messaging, more control of your own pricing, more control of pretty much everything gives them an advantage. And similar to other companies smaller than them, like New Level Golf and some other things like that. So, yeah. They definitely haven't lowered the prices on the wedges. The Mac Daddy is not No, that's Callaway. Sugar <laughs> Daddy. Sugar Daddy. Yeah. Um, Harry's got so many daddies. Too many daddies. I can't keep track. That's six twenty-five for a, for one wedge. Well, that's I mean that's a little different. I mean that's that is legitimately a very expensive wedge to make, especially from a time cost where you have a machine that has to take a solid block of steel and turn it into a golf club. So and then yeah, put about thirty-two weights into yeah, it. Then, yeah, but yeah, whatever. And do the PXG thing with the weights too. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. But the the distribution model pieces is a massive advantage that I probably didn't really consider too much until I, I sat down and write to write the story about the prototype drivers. When you look at Callaway, Ping, TaylorMade, all of all of the guys that exist within the industry as it is and, and how business is done within the golf equipment industry, it's heavily reliant on, on retail and, and more specifically even big box retailer. Like you don't necessarily think about it or know about it, but the biggest seller of golf clubs in the country is Dick's Sporting Goods. That's that's where the most money is made selling golf clubs, and then it's Superstore, and it's a while before it trick, trickles down to green grass. And so, if if a company, you know, pick one, right? If if Callaway decides that when they come out of this this COVID nineteen window and it's time to get aggressive in pricing, it's a it's a massive strategy. And, and a ton of considerations that go into to navigating the retailers and, and working with retail pricing models and, and figuring out how to make up the difference in a driver that was supposed to sell for 500 that now sells for four or 350 or whatever that number ultimately ends up being. And every golf company is in a similar position with their with the big retail accounts and all retail accounts where they have to kind of navigate the waters of 
you know, timing price releases or price adjustments so that everybody has the same price at the same time and nothing is on sale for one guy, not another. And again, figuring out credits or, or cash back for all of this stuff. Whereas in a situation like PXG and, and New Level is one we mentioned too, because Eric Birch, the owner there, has done essentially the same thing. When you don't have major retail distribution and even to, a, to an extent more so with PXG than even New Level, where custom fitting accounts like TrueSpec and Cool Clubs and, and TXG aren't necessarily a, a major driving force of your business because you, you do your own fittings and you have your own fitting bands and your own re retail locations. If you want to make a price change, you make a price change. And that's the end. Of it. Like that's like, all right, we're going to lower prices done. And there's no, there's nobody you have to give credit back to or not just that, but it's the whole experience, right? Like PXG is about giving an experience and then you control the experience a hundred percent, right? You don't have to rely on, let's say some pro shop carries your clubs and they have a fitter that might not be as good as you would, would want him to be for your brand, right? Or and he's, provide... he's staff for another brand. You know, he's got a, a title of staff bag. And so that's kind of where- Or he gets a spiff for selling some other brand, reasons. right? Any number Correct. of reasons. So let's say that you've built this brand, no matter what the three letters are on it or name of it is, and- you expect a certain experience for your customers and you hear that somebody bought a set of your clubs or your uh, one of your drivers from one of these retail places and they got a poor experience. There's not much you can really do other than saying, hey guys, you know, do a little better, right? So you're leaving up part of the experience that people have with your brand up to other people. And it's going to be really interesting coming out of this, what changes happen. PXG obviously is proving this model to be uh, potentially successful. And I think the major OEMs were looking to do this anyway, but it was tough to disconnect all those places that they were plugged in. But I think you're gonna see more of it coming out of this for sure. And to keep in mind, there's in, in a typical retail conversation, there, there's so many people that, that have to be taken care of, right? So, you know, the, the company has, has got to make a cut and the retailer's got to take a cut. In a, in a typical retail situation for a golf club, if you look at the list price on our, you know, what your, your base margin is, I've seen it as low as 17 or 18% on paper. But by the time you actually get in inventory and volume discounts and other sort of uh, motivating factors, if you will, come into play, typically retail is taking 30 to 40%. Of, of that that price whereas if you're a pxg if you're a new level and you're and, and a sub 70 right all of these guys that that don't deal in typical retail it's all that yours. margin goes into your pocket and so you have the option if you choose to and as we've seen here with pxg they have chosen to lower prices and who knows when they'll go back up or if they'll go back up but you can still make money at that price when you're not giving up that 30 to 40 percent well just do the simple math you got a thousand dollar set of irons or driver or whatever it is right if you have to get 30 40 points to a retailer that's 700 600 right instead of you keeping all thousand do it so a few thousand you, times well if you can keep all thousand you can lower prices to even 20 percent less than they were and still you're making more money than you were selling it in a retail shop well, the part that hit me too about this was, you know, you think about it, what are the major brands, whether it's, you know, Callaway, TaylorMade, Ping, et cetera, what are they not doing right now? Selling. Selling golf clubs, anything. And we know from some of our surveys, data, et cetera, how often does the average person buy a new set of irons, buy a new set of wedges, buy a new driver? Every four so years. Every four, four years. So, so if I'm PXG, if I'm new level, whatever, and I'm getting this motivated customer right now that's maybe waiting to see what these other companies are doing and saying, okay, even when they come out, is the deal going to get better? Because as soon as you see something on sale, a lot of critical consumers are going to say, well, maybe the prices will get a little bit better. Well, with PXG, New Level, et cetera, they know right now that those are pretty damn good prices. And what they're going to do, they're buying them and buying them and buying them. And they're not going to buy another driver in June or July or for the next three or four years. So you just captured a new customer that might become a customer again later on because of the, the you know, constrictions that the typical retail channels have that you guys have already, you know, kind of detailed. The funniest thing I saw yesterday was somebody bitching about how cheap the prices were on PXG. And <laughs> <laughs> They and can't win. Like, it's too high. It's too low. <laughs> I mean, I was like, dude, th what is what is wrong with the internet, man? I mean, damn. But anyway, it's, 
Yeah, I mean, from a, from kind of like a do I buy, don't I buy? It's it's kind of an interesting psychological game that's being played, right? Because I think if you're at least the 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 type of golf consumer who's listening to us, you are very very aware that at some point the the prices on the the big guy's stuff is going to drop and and maybe significantly. So maybe you can get a Maverick for four hundred. Maybe you can get a Sim for for four hundred, three fifty, whatever the number is. But you know for a fact right now you can get a PXG driver for under three hundred dollars. And the and the ripple there is, and you don't know when that price is going to go back up. Not only that, but what are the chances when everybody comes back out and plays that the price of other big manufacturers is going to be below two ninety five? Not very high. No, because again, that's it's tough to. I don't know that you can sell a Maverick again using that as the example, or a Sim for two ninety five, and and have anybody do better than breaking even. And that that very well could be the reality. And look at the last two, three, four years. The best value driver in our most wanted testing is typically right at that three hundred to three hundred fifty dollar price point. And so you're seeing people reduced to that, and that gets to a whole nother dynamic around how do maybe some of these companies survive long term if prices do reduce. How does Tour Edge make it through this when they have found that 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 sweet spot for pricing, right? And that sweet spot was a sweet spot for a reason. No one was playing in that space and it worked for them. Whatever they call it, pound for pound. Dollar for dollar. Dollar for dollar, pound for pound, whatever it is. Dollar for yard, whatever the math is, right? Redonkey long, whatever word you want to use. (laughs) Um, There's going to be other people playing in that space. So how are those companies now, what sweet spot are they going to be able to find? Because now you go from being the only person playing in that arena to a lot of people in your sandpit, you know? And we look at, if you go back now, we, we tested the 0811X and 0811XF for the last two years. And, you know, as we continue to do, we've evolved our metrics and, and looked at a few different things. But, you know, certainly XF is right at the top of the table for forgiveness. It's, you know, one of the two or three. And depending on the metric you use is easily number one. Uh, 0811X, especially for higher swing speed players, we've seen is one that comes up quite a bit in our true golf fit stuff which is you know that's entirely automated it's not like anybody's can pull a handle and, and get a result that they want including us really and and so you know those drivers are really strong performers and at 295 i, I never thought i'd say this but i think pxg has the best value on the driver market right now pound for pound kaboom is that how it, is there a kaboom oh boy is that, is, is that a thing i don't know yeah, it's odd times, man. When, when, like I said, when if you can say PXG is the best value in golf, you're you're in a world that's for sure. Well, they created the pricing gap, and they're now filling the pricing gap. So there's a you know whole yeah. kind of cyclical thing going on here too. That's kind of interesting. But I, I will say, and this is, I mean, this is a, a legitimate point of the conversation with any deep discount. If two months ago I paid the full ride for any PXG product, and now it's significantly less than what I paid. In, in a period of time which could legitimately be, be measured in hours, I'd be, be pretty pissed off. And that's that's the one risk for the brand moving forward. We'll see. Okay, so you guys just talked a bunch about PXG, but Chris, there was an article this week about Honma Golf. They're trying to figure out the North American market. I'm sure the pandemic isn't helping, but what to what extent are they going to to try to figure out how to get their clubs sold and popular in North America? Yeah. And, you know, really, this is one that we've been kind of tracing for quite some time. I think it was maybe, I don't know, Tony, what was it, three, four years ago, it seemed like the PGA show, the one question everybody was asking was, you know, how are we going to figure out North America? And, and it makes a lot of sense because, right, North America, largest uh, retail market in the world still. So if you want to be a, you know, a brand experiencing global growth, you have to or want to try to play where, you know, a majority of the money is. And so um, over time, we've seen different companies try to quote unquote figure out North America and nobody's really cracked the code just yet and John Barber wrote an awesome story this week kind of looking at Hanma their platform's a little bit different and and I think what's kind of to me most intriguing about it is in order to at least kind of where they're coming from in order to really figure out North America they have to give up some of what uh, a lot of very traditional Japanese companies aren't willing to give up um, some of its manufacturing 
pricing and some of that comes back to the manufacturing part right uh other than tour staff and, and maybe a very select few individuals honda clubs are are design engineered etc in japan cicada but they're produced somewhere else uh presumably china um although i don't know the china part for a fact but obviously someplace where manufacturing is a little bit less expensive so you have this japanese identity background history to leverage but production uh isn't occurring there so you have that combined with tour staff trying to figure out how to navigate that from a retail standpoint it's going to look a lot more uh you know i guess like pxg uh where there's going to be mobile fitting vans are talking about 14 or so territories can we talk about those for a minute the mobile fitting vans how does that work it's it's a model that i've taken to calling direct to consumer on wheels is effectively what it is so you're out at the golf course and this van pops up and, and comes and fits you for a, a home. Yeah, so they, they set up a fitting day. Yeah, you basically. basically call it like an Uber and say, hey, Honma, you know, I want to get fit. Uh, come on out. And in a perfect scenario, it runs through the, the club professional and he's able to get two or three or four, however members he can get that are interested in, in trying and buying some Honma clubs. And, and you have kind of a little customized direct-to-order demo day, if you will. Here's why it really works, too, from from the retail standpoint, because we, you know, this is probably going to be a theme throughout this year, too, is just how broken the traditional retail market is and, and how some of this is really exposing some of the shortcomings of that. But you think about this from the course perspective, what do they have to do? Not much, right? They ring the register, and so they get a commission based on that and basically place the orders, et cetera. Um, you treat it, like I said, kind of like an Uber situation, and you know, maybe it's me, Tony, Harry. We say, hey, we'd like to get fit for these clubs. They send a person out. We head out there Saturday, get fit. They run the order through the club, and done. That's it. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a low overhead model for the course. Uh, Distribution-wise, it makes it a lot easier on there. And, and then Hanma's controlling the fitting process. They're controlling the messaging, the experience that people are having from beginning to end. It's it's kind of this white glove service idea, and they're, they're controlling every aspect of it. So smart idea going forward, I think. The biggest thing I think that is going to be tough for Hanma to break into the market in North America would be the pricing, because I don't think the ever going to give up that pricing and and the fact that they had justin rose and i have no idea what happened to justin rose if he's still at honma or if he's back somewhere else i haven't paid that much close attention to it but they need a little bit more presence on tour and i know it's not been a proven model that tour players move the needle but to get professionals on on their staff might be a helping hand for them to break into the market it's an interesting situation. I mean, so Justin Rose was the guy, and that situation is still a little undefined, I guess, at the moment. But they do have several guys who are, are playing, you know, a club or two here or there in play on tour. So it's tough to get publicity that way. But I think the two things I would say that, that Honma has done to break into North America that the, the other Japanese brands trying to come over here heaven is first and john touched upon both of these things the first is they're actually designing clubs for the north american golfer because uh, typically what you find is the japanese brands will come over here and and present to the american market the same clubs that they sell in japan the Very specs nice. are wildly different the consumer is inherently looking for an entirely different product and so basically what sells over there doesn't sell over here and so you're you're starting you know already in a hole and and the other big thing they've done is is hire people who already know the North American market. Well, not just uh, know the market, but have had major success I mean, kinda, in the market. Being, uh, they've they've defined the market. They, well, yeah. put it this way. When you hire somebody, right, idealistically, the best person you could hire is someone that has already done the job you're trying to hire for, but also done it successfully, right? And that's who they have there to do it. Right. So it started with Mark King, who was... In, in some respects, the architect of the, the tailor-made machine that dominated the, the industry for so long is now at Taco Bell and has thus far uh, refused to bring uh-huh. back the chili cheese burrito. Where's the Cholito at? So, so, yeah, so Mark King, John Coagio was a longtime tailor-made guy who is now running the show at Honma. They brought in Chris McGinley, who is VP of Marketing of Marketing for Titleist for, you know, for, for quite a run there as well. So these are guys that that know how to produce, market, and sell golf clubs in North America. So I think if you're going to look at any of the Japanese brands and go, all right, which one has a chance? 
this is a situation where finally one has emerged from the pack of, to the point where you can go, yeah, that's that's the one I, I think I believe in. Because if you yeah. look at all those brands you profiled, and you can run down the list, you know, two or three years ago, how many of them are we still talking about? Well, Zero. The TR20, right? That's the first complete line designed by the American design team, right? And no doubt it's already experiencing a lot of success. And and like I said, the Justin Rose thing, we'll see kind of where that happens from what I'm you know, chatting with people at Honda. It's still in a, a, a legal conversation, a kind of a legal purgatory, yeah, if you will. Yeah, um, but let, let's be, I mean, Chris, be honest with you. Let's project five years from now. I don't give a damn if they have Justin Rose or not. That doesn't matter nope. to me, you know? So, like, move on, you know, like, who cares what Justin Rose is going to do with home? He's not going to be the the person that makes this happen or not happen moving forward, in my opinion. But it already looks bad right now. So just drop the guy and move forward, right? Because it's not a good optical situation going on right now. That's true, right. And that's not to say everybody's going to believe the truth when it comes out, whatever it happens to be. But but the longer that it drags, the more who the more people who are aware that Justin Rose plays home are thinking, well, Justin Rose isn't playing home the only reasonable conclusion that comes from that is that the clubs aren't very good. If people aren't thinking Justin Rose is playing the clubs because they make him better and hopefully win more tournaments, then he doesn't have a whole lot of value for you perceptually. Here's perhaps yeah. an obvious question. Harry, how'd they do in the driver tests this year? So-so. Good. Did pretty uh, well. I would argue better than so-so. At least one of the models was top five. <laughs> yeah, they were fourth. Uh, I mean, no, I'm, th I'm thinking on the X... The, the X yeah, yeah, so again, essentially the Japanese yeah. spec club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So their first club design engineered sold for the North American market was fourth. And again, you flip two, three yards here, there, whatever. It could have been second, could have been first. Um, interesting enough, when I did True Golf It, it was my number one selection. That and the title is TS4. And I think it's a sleeper. I mean, in any other year with a normal retail cycle, I think I think TR20 would be kind of that, for me, that kind of sleeper award because people aren't thinking about Japanese companies. And, and specifically when people do, they tend to associate forged irons, players' cavity back, um, wedges, etc. When's the last time anybody ever really thought about a metal wood from a Japanese company? Maybe other than like Royal Collection turning into Sonar Tech or something like that. Oh, but like, oh man. Clubs. When's the last time you thought of a Japanese cut and going, oh, man, that driver is hot. All right. Well, let me back up for you a little, Chris. Like, was the true golf that you did pre-Super Speed or post-Super Speed? <laughs> uh, Pre-Roast Beef Bag number three. <laughs> so we're going to have to give you another. We're going to have to give you a free fitting to see what you got now. But back to the idea of the North America piece back and on. Japanese companies. Uh, take a company like Myra, right? We know they're under the 8 a.m. umbrella with Golf Magazine, Golf.com, Nicholas Companies, right? The list goes on and on, Golf Logics, et cetera. Um, in some ways, they have their own kind of unique status and separate standing because they're under, right, under that umbrella. And in some ways, they'll exist however Howard Milstein and, well, and, and well, you know, wants them to exist, right? So Harry, they're not as market deterrent. You know, they're, they're in a different market than you know than a hanma i think we said they've, they've never had a metal wood that, that and i mean not even move the needle but it was like for being brutally honest right was even really interesting within the within the north america yeah miura has never had a driver worth a damn you know no, and they, but they, back to tony and harry's point like if you wanted to start a company right and you were an american or whatever and you wanted it to start for the First day, day one, your business starts, but it's a Japanese business, but you're running it from here. There's just things and traditions over there that are different. I mean, the likelihood of your success is limited and diminished by you not knowing that market, right? So, yeah, different, that's generally speaking how all the Japanese companies tried to start figuring out North America. And that that that's setting yourself up probably for failure out of the gate. And I think Honma is at least setting themselves up for potential success. Hummer is the, 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 the TR20 did well in the test and that was based on American designers, correct? Mm -hmm. So there you go. I mean, it's, it's another piece of the pie that they need to keep, keep on with that. And so their wedge, I don't know who designed their wedge, but their wedge won our wedge test last year. Yeah, it was deep. it's good. Another, yeah, again, a, another sleeper. I was going to yeah. say another sleeper and another piece coming up as we learn more about how they're going to have the custom wedge program and, and Jacob Wedge Wizard Sanborn and kind of what that's going to look like. Doing some very North American, you know, things that are going to really cater to to North American buyers. I, I think the last thing I want to say on this, because this is interesting too, is 
in order for a Japanese company to successfully navigate, I think, in North America, it's going to have to give up some of the things that are very traditionally Japanese. And so, True. It, it, again, it's one of those conflicting kind of like cognitive dissonance things where people that are really like hardcore JDM fans are probably going to look down, if they're not already, a little bit at Honda as being less authentically Japanese because of some of the sacrifices they need to make in order to be successful where they know they want to be successful. Totally. I'm well, well put. Looking for some education here, why would a club need to be different in an American and a Japanese I'll, market? I'll give you a couple examples. One from a aesthetic standpoint and one from an actual design standpoint. So typically... From an aesthetic standpoint, Chris would know this too, since he and I both kind of dabbled in that market for a long time. Let's say you take a popular putter design or a head cover design from an aesthetic standpoint, and it it moves the needle really well in America. You put it out over there and they go, what is that? I can understand if, aesthetics. Yeah, that, right. that makes sense. All right. From a design standpoint, typically that market is shorter and slower swing speed. So. Okay. Even everything from lie angles to the weights of the clubs to the loft. shafts to the loft all have to be made slightly different for different type of golfer, right? Okay. The other part is you have to look at culturally what happens. And I learned you know, a lot about this. I said studying the Japanese market and, and talking to people and understanding that the role that golf plays as, as a traditional cultural event is different in Japan than it is in the United States. And, and um, you know, maybe the way that Americans might see a car or a house as a status symbol, a lot of Japanese, traditional Japanese, would see golf clubs as a status symbol. And that's why with the Hanma part, part of what's very interesting to me too is, you know, people see that $75,000 price tag that we put in there because, you know, Hanma bears five-star line, or they think of maybe the club that, um, uh, what was it, Shinzo Abe gave to President Trump, you know, a couple of years ago, whatever, $3,500 driver. Because it's a status symbol, it's a Rolex, it's a Ferrari, it's a house in the right area with a five-car garage. If something isn't expensive enough, people aren't going to purchase it. Oh, One of my favorite stories was the PGA show. No, I was hoping you'd go with this. I was waiting for this. So I don't know if it was my first year there or not, but there was a new putter company on the scene. And back then at the PGA show, just for those that haven't been there, the putting corral was huge back then. It was amazing right it's not that anymore but back then it was and the guy was setting up his new putter company no one had ever heard of this guy right and he had a nice little uh booth and he was setting up uh all his putters and some of them were limited edition some of them were custom stamped all this and there was a japanese buyer that came by pre-show opening so this was like just me and maybe a hundred other people walking the show floor and he comes up and he goes i i'll buy them all and the guy was like uh, what do you mean? He's like, I want them all. And he's like, well, okay. And the guy goes, how much are they? And he said, two ninety five. And literally the guy did not say another word. He walked off and the guy that owned the putter company was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, wait a second, come back. How did that just go from you wanting them all to not wanting them at all and walking off and not saying another word? He goes, my buyer doesn't want a $295 putter. It wants a thousand dollar putter. See you later. And that was it. That guy lost all those sales because the Japanese market for limited edition looks at $295 putters as a joke, you know? Like there's something wrong with it. Like you go into the parking lot and you see a brand new Mercedes-Benz S-Class for $40,000. You're going, what's wrong with this? I ain't paying that. Yeah, they need us. They need to see the price tag that makes, you know, that makes sense. So there's a cultural piece there too, Miranda. I think in terms of what makes them different. Yeah, it, generally more forgiving clubs, more offset, different lie angles, softer shafts. Everything um, Americans you know, hate. Everything Americans hate. Right. The opposite. Yeah. It is. It is. So it's it's literally flipping it on its head from a design perspective a lot of the time. So they really are fundamentally very different uh, buyers. I don't know why we didn't really lean on Tony for this. I mean, Tony lived in Japan, was a Japanese model, and we totally <laughs> excluded him from the Japanese section of this part of the podcast. Yeah, no, yeah, but I was I was I was really 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 young there, so I didn't I didn't play much or any golf or barely walk for that matter. Just you know. We forgot about the Japanese eye candy, man. That's, that was I was going to say, is that a different <laughs> philosophy as well? Do you have to strike different poses for the Japanese market than an American market? You know, I've never done any modeling over here, <laughs> if you can believe that. So Don't lie. Don't lie. <laughs> well, well, I have the pose that he struck for that 
first magazine, so we can definitely have. How old were you? You're gonna see it right here. Right. Couple five, weeks, maybe. It's gonna be right there. Five. Yeah, I was hoping to do some work at J.C. Penney's, but that doesn't look like it's gonna fall down. One of them kind of deals. Tony, I do. Um, have some ball lab questions for you. I know you've had another week in the ball lab, right? So from what I'm hearing, we have a better understanding of some of the consistencies in the ball industry, right? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's just continually an interesting thing to watch. So we started roughly 60 dozen on order and just kind of as they sourcing them from different places, they're coming in at different times. So I essentially put the first dozen of each in the incubator, get the environmental conditions right for where we want to measure them and take them out, measure them and, and you know, lather, rinse, repeat. And so now we're, we're getting into the second and in some cases, even third dozens of these balls. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see kind of differences in, in every specification, not only within a box, but within, you know, the variation between box and, and box. So we're seeing things like that, where in some cases, Across two dozen, the compression range is, is maybe four points, four to five points, so really tight. And in other cases, it's like 12. So you're like, all right, so now we're moving into territory where you could legitimately say some of these balls are different than, than others. Um, are you finding that you're having new standards for what's good and, and what's bad? Are you adjusting those? So th that's a really good question because it's, it's one of these things where, like, this, it's why we decided to measure a whole bunch of balls and not just go, all right, we're going we're gonna to test this ball and write it up because we, we had no way to really quantify what is good, what is bad, what does average look like. Mm -hmm. And so in testing these balls, I kind of developed, you know, it was kind of back and forth between the gauges and, and the, the larger picture and, and starting to get a sense of, you know, what the threshold was like on a, on a, on a dial gauge between a, a seam measurement and the pole measurement. What's the difference between the two before you say that ball isn't round? And so I came up with a number. Uh, I've reached out to the five leaders in the ball market right now. One of them has gotten back to me. My number was exceptionally close to theirs. I was maybe a little less forgiving than they are. And I do mean, uh, you know, it's honestly a difference between 0 0.005 and 0 0.006. That's the kind of, those are the, the small numbers we're working with. So I'm, I have that open question out to the industry and saying, all right, how would you define round in terms of a, of a measurable number? So I'm expecting more will get back to me. I'm expecting conversations will come out of that. And I'm doing the same thing with similar questions around the conformity of the ball. So, so for your purposes, are you saying that round is conforming? Because again, this is sort of where I say, well, isn't round round? Isn't that well, just well, a mathematical so kind of either, thing? It's either round or not round. Okay. So that's, that's not really, that's a, Technically, a golf ball is is supposed to be symmetrical, right? Um, but you know, there's there's wiggle room in that definition. Conforming is a size, like it has a minimum diameter okay. of 1.68 inches, and there's a a ring gauge test you can use. And you know, I'm finding the occasional ball that is that is too small. I wouldn't say it's prevalent, but it's certainly more common than I would have thought. Thank All right, God. so we learned a couple things last week, right? And then this week, we obviously you and I talk every day. So, what are some things yeah. that you learned this week about golf balls that you that you think would be interesting to golfers? Yeah. So, I mean, again, the the consistency from box to box, and we'll see more about. It. It's more like kind of the the eye popping moments that that kind of happen through a test. So, you find balls where the weights are all over the map, right? You typically, again, there's there's a weight standard for a golf ball, and usually. If a ball is under that weight, which is perfectly fine, they're all relatively consistent. But every now and then you find a box where it's like this and you look at the sizes of those balls and it's it's like this. So the golf balls within a box aren't the same size. And that that has legitimate performance implications. Are, so, we, are we looking at big name brands? I'm guessing it's the lower name brands that you have seen these inconsistencies in. It's, I would say there there is a correlation with the bigger brands, especially between cost and and quality. consistency and quality so going into this and i guess if you're asking you know kind of an interesting find for me and you know my my definition of interesting may not be the same as somebody else's but my, my assumption was a a two-piece ionomer cover ball was probably going to be more consistent because again it's 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 just a core and a cover. And if you make that core round <laughs> and put a cover on it you're you're going to be in pretty good shape and it, it's just not proven to be the case. Would it be safe to say that it's really hard to make 12 golf balls in a dozen that are actually consistent? 
it sure seems to be hard to make 12. Why though? Again, that's what I don't understand. With all the technology that we have today, why is it hard that is, that's the to reason. get a production line? Right. You're pumping out millions and millions yes. of gopos a day. It's Capital. materials, it's process, it's price, and it's also just the fact that golfers have never even cared, right? That's it. So like that's it's the last one because it. who's ever done this? Who's ever tested it to this degree with this level of a microscope and and been willing to test all the balls across well, the industry? People have been willing to do it, but those were the people making the balls and they damn sure weren't willing to tell the golfers what they were finding. Right. I and guess that's some, like, that's the like, point. And if you, you talk to anybody quietly, even, you know, pick pick a leading brand, they'll tell you, yeah, we have an excellent quality control standard, but yeah, occasionally we get balls slipped through that aren't round. And, and I'm sure they tell you, yeah, we get some that slip through that are undersized, but it's, 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 but when it's like half and half, thing. it's yeah, kind it's, of crazy. It's a frequency Sorry. thing. And, and yeah, and I have, so I've, I have found a box of balls from a, from a brand everybody listening to this would recognize where by, by the standard provided by, by the one manufacturer I've spoken with so far, five of the balls within the dozen were not round. Is that like um, a noticeable to the eye, or is it with the small, small gauges where you, you're doing so, it, I mean, but some kind of it affects is, the flight, obviously? Some of it, well, it's, everything impacts a flight to some degree, right? Like, well, if you if you every, if you hit an egg with a wedge, I don't right, think it's going to fly I, the same as a circle. But I get that, but is it big, point, is it big enough to get round, to that point? At, at some point, it's the difference between a ball that falls in the hole and burns the edge, right? Even that most minute detail. But yeah, so a lot of the times you can't you you don't see it, which is probably why it, it is the way it is. But I was I was measuring a ball the other night, and the specifications again, you're, you're not. You know, I'm not laser scanning the entire surface of the ball. You're you're taking the uh, a three point measurement, so I'm getting a diameter at two points on the seam and then one on the pole. And so, you know, most of the time that's going to give you that. That's where you're likely to see the variation. But um, and I, we also do a visual inspection for each ball. I'm looking for things like is are the stamps clean, right? Is there any smearing, anything that would on tour anyway make this ball not conforming? And you're looking for are there are there scuffs, things where it didn't come out of a machine the right way? Are there kind of things hanging off or dimples that have like mold remnants, anything that's essentially not supposed to be there? So you're, I'm doing a visual a inspection, kind of rolling it around. And it's, it's, it's a tactile kind of thing in some respects where you're, you're trying to feel a texture that shouldn't be there. And I'm, I'm rolling it around and I'm like, what is that? And so I look, I'm like, because it feels like there's a bump on the ball. So I go back and I look at my three. You had a three, you had a ball zit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm looking at my three measurements on the gauge, and everything on the from those three points, it looks good. And I'm like, well, if I remember correctly, the average diameter of that was like 1.579, was was about what I was getting, which is typical. So everything is usually right a, around a little below the USGA standard, and then. Through Round the back. magic of rounding, you you get to conforming. Get to the zit. I know you want to get to the zit. So, <laughs> so basically, the numbers I had were everything you would expect. So again, one point six seven is the number to keep in mind. And I'm rolling it around, and I get to one point six eight eight five, which is again, this sounds like a small number, but in terms of a diameter on a golf ball, it's a hump, a a hump on a solid core golf ball that is. In a box that we purchased at retail. You had you had a whitehead. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. And so what I do in this case, I'm like, you know, all right, let me let me mark it as precisely as I can where this thing is. And when we get to the point where we're cutting these balls, it's gonna be interesting to see if if that hump is then <laughs> visible in the cross section if it comes. All right. Of, so what like, I want to like know, and I'm those... sure everybody else wants to know, is this though. We tested a Chrome Soft, obviously last year it did not do well. We then cut them open, we did a lot of other inspections. They did not do well. Have you started to test the new Chrome Softs that they say are, uh, it's the new ball that changed that ball? So I'm, I'm one dozen in plus a visual on the second dozen. Um, okay. So we haven't cut them yet, and I think that's that's probably going to be the most interesting. I, I would say from the first dozen, and, and I've talked to Callaway about this, and to some extent, I'll explain this in a, in a second, it's expected. So uh, versus, say, a Titleist or a Bridgestone, the compressor the compression range within a box of Callaway Chrome Softs is, is wider. Uh, that I can say with, with reasonable certainty. I would expect that to carry over as I measure more and more of those. 
Um, and, but, and when you say compression, that will equate to how many yardage if it was... Well, it's, it's the firmness of the ball, and there is a correlation with speed right. to a degree. Now, what, what Callaway has told me is, is that they expect that they're going to have a wider compression range, but that, that, that they, they're kind of tweaking their formula, right? So depending on the environmental conditions, for example, at the time, they tweak the formula of the rubber. And so while you get a wider range in compression you actually get a tighter range in the actual COR of the golf ball. Now, I don't know if this is true. This is something we can test down the road when we get into, you know, because COR should translate to speed. So that'll, that's something you can either look at with a ball cannon or a robot. But, yeah, so that compression is, is wider for sure. And I did find one as well. And, again, single sample. So not to pick on Callaway because I found a single sample of somebody else's ball, which had a, had a bump on it and a single uh, sample of somebody else's ball that had a flat spot uh, and multiple samples of lots of different companies' balls that were non-conforming for size. But getting back to Chrome Soft, I did find one where it basically looked like a fingernail imprint in, in, in a dimple pattern. So here's my question though, is if we're finding, you know, if we can establish enough you know, data and information that says, okay, out of 12 balls, you know, with these different manufacturers, here, here's the number of golf balls that are going to be conforming, round, etc. How many golf balls do I actually need to buy in order to get and a dozen solid balls? A, so, like, that's is exactly this, what the product I want to come out of this is to say, look, all right, you have a golf ball that sells for thirty nine ninety nine a dozen, right? You know, it's kind of the upper end. Yeah. Of the, Call it what is that? What does that, what does that dozen actually cost you? Yeah. So, all right, what's what's your per ball cost? And you know, we're Brutally honest, still again working with with manufacturers to help us define this. But how do you, how much do you actually have to spend to get twelve balls that are the same, oh. or or reasonably close to the same, or yeah? All right, so Chris, to your question, basically, ultimately, right now we are learning, right? So yeah. we're in the edge, we're in the educating the curiosity part of our own process to some degree. We know a lot, but we're learning more. And then once we go to the letting the consumer know what we found. What that's going to look like for consumers, we're not 100% sure yet, but there will be ball reports. So there will be individual ball reports, we think. I also think it would be cool to do head-to-head. -head. So let's take two brands like a Titleist Pro-V, where it's their flagship ball, and the Callaway Chromosoft, which is, you know, they're going to be their flagship ball. And let's head, put them head-to-head -head and see how they stack up from a quality and consistency standpoint. And I also think it would be interesting to potentially take whole brands and show you, hey, here's all of Titleist balls from the top tier to the bottom tier. And you can just look at them all side by side. And if you guys out there listening or girls out there listening have ideas of what you would like us to do, we're all ears right now. Now is the time to get the input. But we definitely think that the head to head stuff, the individual stuff and the brand stuff would be things that you would be interested in. And if there's other things, like I said, we're listening for sure. Yeah, I love the idea of the adjusted cost metric because if you have that one where, you know, let's say it takes me 18 balls to get 12 that are within reason, that's 50% more expensive. All of a sudden, that 40 it's $40 a dozen. It's really a cost of 60 now. And yep. how does that equate? How might that shift people's perceptions around just buying a ball versus buying a quality ball? Um, At the end ball? of the day, they shouldn't, be, they shouldn't be inspecting their own balls. They should just... It should be good. It shouldn't. It should well, be round, and it should be the same consistency throughout. It shouldn't. Well, be there's this, a level of tolerance that's allowed yes. in anything that's manufactured, right? Yeah, and but not like degree, ten to twenty yards. It's funny. Tony and I were just talking about this, right? There are balls. I think I can't remember if this is reversed or what, but there are balls out there that were really firm or firmer that are saying they're super soft on their packaging, right? That's a great one. So. And again, it's all market, right? So you can you can say whatever you want, right? Soft feel. There's no there's no there's no Number. industry standard or anybody's definition to quantify soft. And so I'm measuring these balls, and uh, on the low end, the the softest ball we've measured so far is a is a Callaway Super Soft. I think the lowest number I've had on an individual ball is plus or minus 35 compression. And there's another ball that I've measured where the compression, average compression, I think I told you is 83. And the company selling it promotes that it offers soft feel. And, and so, yeah, by, by a tour ball standard, I suppose you could say that, that an 83 compression ball is, is soft by that standard. But it, it's not a soft ball. That, yeah, that's but the point I'm trying to make ball. to what Harry said is 
if there are no standards for calling soft or hard or this or that or whatever, right? What are the standards for tolerances for ball? There is no set of standards. So to some degree, my golf spy and Tony's ball lab and find a cut and all these things we've done are starting to define hopefully those things for the golf ball industry because left to their own accord, I don't think they're going to set a standard for this. They don't need to, you know? Why would and I they? Think, I think it's, again, reasonable expectations. I don't think any manufacturer would tell you 100% of our balls that, that make it onto shelves are round or 100% I, are... Strixon, Strixon said that 100% of their balls are centered. dead the centered. were centered. And, and we know that wasn't true. Correct. We, we found a couple. So there's there's always a couple. You know, we're not we're not throwing names on things right now for the most part because again, we, we wanna make sure that when we, we talk to a variety of, of industry guys that there's some reasonable range of agreement on how to define these things. But but using the measurements that I have and I have been given, uh, I found a box of, of balls that a lot of our readers love, I know, because it, it keeps getting commented on. Uh, sells, I think, for around $30 a dozen. And in in two boxes, so 24 balls, I've found at least you know, nine or 10, I could go back and tell you, nine or 10 of them not round out of two dozen. So that's, I mean, if, if, if I find two out of, uh, you know, one or two or, you know, one, ideally one or two out of th- the three dozen that we plan to measure initially, yeah, that's exactly. th- I think that would be reasonable. But if, if we're encroaching on, you know, 30, 40%, that that to me is a problem. Like that. Yeah. that well, that to me is that to me is like a little bit of a con. You're literally taking advantage of the consumer, and well, at that point, think about it too. So before any of this happened, there was never a time that I remember hitting a golf ball. And you guys tell me what you think. But had before the ball test and find it, cut it, and all this stuff, and you play golf, had you ever hit a golf ball and hit a bad shot and went that w- other than a cut ball, meaning a ball that had like a a smiley face in it, right? said that was potentially the golf ball's fault, not mine. I saw it once, and, and it wasn't me. I was actually playing with Sam Saunders, Arnie's grandson. He used to live out here in Fort Collins and name crafting, sure, whatever. Yeah, Humble totally. break. <laughs> 100%, not even, yeah, it, it was awesome. But uh, playing a hole, and he, he hits a drive, and the ball just takes like a right-hand turn and did something really weird, and it went over a fence, and he had me go get the ball. Um, so that he could send it back. So <laughs> he could send it back. Bitch, he, he did. And I was like, yes, sir, you <laughs> and I did. He's like, I'm like, what do you want that for? He's like, I'm, I'm sending it back to him because there's something wrong with this ball. Um, it's the only time I've ever seen somebody do I never have. But Well, point uh, being, the bigger point is that I don't think golfers generally blame their bad shots on golf balls. So golf balls could get away theoretically with almost anything quality control wise because Golfers, for most of us, suck at golf, right? When most of us hit it, shoot 100, right? And we slice it and hook it and plunk it and thin it and shank it and whatever. Even, even a ball with a hump, you're going to probably, if, if that's in a box you bought, going to lose it before you find it or notice it. So <laughs> Part of the responsibility of my golf spy is to be a checks and balances for the golf industry that has never had one before in my you know, time being in the golf industry. Supposedly, there was a magazine years ago called Peterson's Golfing that came somewhat close to the standard. Uh, but I had never heard about it prior to starting my golf spy. And that's really part of the role of my golf spy from a journalistic standpoint, a testing standpoint, is to have some checks and balances so that consumers can trust the products they buy. You know, this all started the golf ball piece of it during the when we did the ball test where there were just a handful of, of moments and a moment in a ball test, I guess you could say, is a shot where you just look at what happened and you're like, what the fuck? Like, it cannot be explained because you have this robot that is. Because you can go back and you can look at what the robot did and how much force was applied. And you can look at the launch conditions. And there's always one number that was just not right. And you're like, how does that happen? And so this this is Ball Lab is, is taking that, like, how does this happen, right? The, the, the confusion that we experienced to a degree and, and being able to explain, yeah, this is how it happens. This is why we, why we saw what we saw in the ball test. This is why you may see some of the things you see if you're looking for it. And now, yeah, let's let's actually tell you where we think you should spend your money or at least give you the, the best information, the most information we possibly can so that you can make an informed decision based on something other than, well, I, I think this field just feels good or, you know, so-and-so plays this on tour, so it must be good. Once we get this out the way, I think we should go on the tour and then figure out if those <laughs> balls are the same that they're doing and how inconsistent they are or, 
or we have we have some of those oh, here we go. All right. yeah so let me uh i'll throw this out here too and i i, I don't know how much i'm going to do with it because in in my own estimation i don't have the sample size that i would like um to be sure so i was able to a, a obtain a sleeve of three balls directly from a, a tour player uh, and I have compared them to the same ball that we purchased at retail, identical in every way, seam side stamp, et cetera. And again, there are lots of reasons for that a variance could occur, which is why I'd like to take more. That's my, uh, that's my disclaimer here. But the, apart from the fact that I would say that two balls in the sleeve um, are, I'm confident in saying I would, I would deem them non-conforming for size anyway. Two out of the three, small, they fail the... Uh, the track method that the USGA uses, which is part of what we do as well. Uh, but in, in, t in addition to that, the three balls in the sleeve were across the board, five compression points firmer than, than what we were seeing at retail. So what, what I can do is I can volunteer as tribute on every tour event and, and be the kid <laughs> on the side and say, hey, can you give me my ball, please? And sign my hat as well. Well, we can, I can just say this. Guy. I mean, we could say this. If you know any tour pros out there that would want to participate or if you are a tour pro listening and would want to participate and anonymously send your balls in, our information to where to send it to is on the contact form of my gospel. And we'd love to test more of them, you know. Yeah, and again, I want to be very clear on this at this point. Like, it's a it's a small sample size, and and five compression points is possibly within the range that could have happen with age and environmental conditions and things like that. But but that they were consistently five percent uh, compression points higher is is certainly enough to make me go hmm. And so when we get to the point where we're we're cutting things open, you, you can bet I'm gonna come cut the retail and the tour open and see. You know, if it's if it if there's anything that's visually different, or if it, like I said, you know, just just one of those things that that can be different because of production. So we're going to check back in with you next week and see what progress you've made in just the week um, between now and then. But on to one of our more important topics of the day. Everyone is noting how golf courses are packed. It seems like a lot of people are out playing, but what we're finding is that's not necessarily correlating to building revenue they're not bringing in money yeah and again this probably depends on on the regulations in place at a given state right now and, and things like that and and to an extent the the climate of an area in general but i can i can speak to to what we're seeing here locally where a lot of courses don't have carts um so you kind of think of every place that it a public, a, I mean, if you're if you're private, you you might have a little ability to to sustain through this because guys are paid up. Um, but just the timing of this, especially in the Northeast, is kind of a window where guys either had or hadn't paid their membership dues for the year, and a lot of us haven't, myself included. I haven't joined this year because projecting the landscape, I'm like I just don't know how much golf there is to be to be played. So you have situations where you may be relying on public foot traffic when you may not have been as much because your members haven't all come back. Uh, my club, from what I understand, is down upwards of 70 members, I believe, that haven't come back this year. And again, most of that just being COVID related. We're not running golf carts right now. So cart revenue, which can be a massive part of, of the revenue stream for a course, uh, isn't coming in. There's no pro shop revenue coming in. The restaurant is is effectively closed. You're doing takeout, or my club's doing takeout four nights a week, but there's no lunch service. There's no, most importantly, there's no post-round beverage service. So there's a lot of money that you would typically get coming in that isn't uh, tournaments. Tournaments have been canceled. And again, I think this is uh, probably going to be true for a lot of courses in a similar situation where you can't stop taking care of the course. And so you're, you're paying your grounds crew and you have to keep your management teams in place to an extent. So you have to keep paying a lot of people to be open to golfers. Uh, if you're going to have your golfers on the oh. course, but, <laughs> but in terms of, yeah, generating revenue, like you would in a normal year, it's, it's going to be a struggle. And I don't know how you make that up. I mean, it's simple math, right? You take a big pie and you look at all the revenue generators that fill up that piece of pie. And right now, you see a lot of people playing golf, which tee times is part of that pie, but it's definitely not the whole pie. And the rest of that pie has been eaten up, you know, and it's and in some know. cases it's reduced cost tee times because you, you, you sort of want to entice the guys who who would otherwise want to take a cart and you are losing a lot of those guys, too. Why can't they do one to a cart? That's what they're doing down here. It's, That's what I we're mean, doing. Again, it varies. It varies state to state. 
even one in a cart, like I, I've said, I'll be brutally honest. I, I would not trust the cart that, kids to, to provide but, hospital yeah, but that doesn't That still doesn't solve the problem of right. the food and the problem. alcohol and all the other stuff that generated money for you, income for you. They are no longer generating income. So optically, a golf course can look like it's rolling, man. It's packed, right? I mean, I just talked to a guy right before the podcast. He was like, took four hours to play nine holes yesterday. It was that packed. And so he is like, man, golf is doing great. I don't know. You know, I think there's going to be some golf courses that don't survive this coming out of this because they were already struggling. A lot of it's going to be regional and and how each state is doing and and how much of a course's revenue is dependent on on not necessarily the food portion, but certainly the beverage portion. Right. The the post round drinks that adds up over the course of the season. Outside play, tournament play, especially when you, you know, tournaments for a lot of courses are are the single biggest line item in a given year. And if, if you're canceled through June, July, and, and potentially August and beyond, like the more that drags, yeah, I mean, that's, that's money you can't make up. There's, there's no way to get that back later, especially if, you know, you've got a hard stop when the snow falls. Yeah, and so, I think you have to look at each of those slices of the pie, like I was saying, as and understand what type of indicator it is. Is it a positive indicator, a negative indicator? Is it a true indicator, like an authentic one or a false indicator? And part of the problem with the carts, like at our course, we do the single rider thing right now. So every cart, um, you know, you can have one rider in it unless there's family members or if you have like a, you know, take my daughters out, um, you know, they can ride with me. But when you establish a fleet for a course, they're basing that on 1.7, 1.8 riders per car. It's not always going to be two. It's not always going to be one. It's going to be somewhere in between there. Nobody did those projections based on a maximum of one. And so they're running out of carts, 10, 30, 11, 12 o'clock during a, a super busy day. It's not like they can then generate that revenue in the afternoon in some other fashion. You have people that otherwise would be paying to use a cart that there's no cart for them to even pay for. So it looks good. It looks like, man, the course is packed. All the carts are gone. But the reality is there's a bit of a false indicator going on there as well. Is there anything that courses, in your opinions, can do to try to save themselves? Or are we just looking at the end of this potentially losing some courses until things get back on track? Yes, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I think this is money you can't make up and, and every course has bills to pay. Things like that don't go away, as we know. And so, uh, and again, even, even with, with a golf course, right, when you talk about something like the, the PPP program, maybe you keep your employees, but that, that doesn't give you the revenue you would get from the, the services you're not able to offer right now. So again, another one I failed to mention, pool memberships. If, if a club mm-hmm. does, does pool memberships on the side, like is, is that going to happen? It doesn't look like it, it will anytime soon. So I, I think this, we've talked about, the retail side where you've kind of we're seeing a reinvent a reinvention of, of what retail golf could look like as people adapt to this and you may you may see similar situations where private clubs or semi-private clubs have to go fully public or something like that offer different services down the road to as much as you can if, if not recuperate the money create new revenue streams that that backfill as best they can but yeah i mean i i don't know like it's is this where we situation. where we put a call out to say, I know we're doing our best to support our local businesses. If you eat takeout, try to make it a local place. Don't forget about the restaurants at your clubs or the pro shop. But don't forget to well, that's the thing is that influx but the, some, some the revenue one, there. The clubs that are still open, the membership clubs, you still have a monthly due to hit. For some clubs, have a monthly membership where you have to hit a food minimum. So they're still going in there, but nine times out of ten, you'll go past that minimum anyway. You, you, they're still going to recoup some of that money because even if you don't go there and eat, they're still going to charge you for the, the minimum that you did. I, mean, I think yeah. it's probably club dependent how, how everyone's handling it. But I was going to say, I think we've for, totally forgotten though about non clubs, meaning like the majority gonna, of golf courses and municipal courses where dudes are wearing blue jeans to go play golf. Yeah, I mean, nope. that but is the heart of golf. So that's, I think, to answer your question, Miranda, it, I think there's going to be different answers depending on what the ownership or management structure of the course is like. If we're talking about municipal courses, city-run courses, um, you know, uh, entirely public courses, those answers are going to differ. Um, and and mm-hmm. some of it may be how that city feels about golf and, and what that looks like. And maybe they change things so the pass works for three or four courses in an area as opposed to well, I'll give just you an one example or two. About that. There's a local municipal course that we were, they were in talks with working with us about some projects on and 
They, the city town is not interested in spending a single dollar over what they are already spending having that golf course here. If anything, they're looking for every way to cut. I mean, they just, mm-hmm. you know, most places aren't looking for ways to add golf courses right now and spend more money on golf courses. It's just, it's just not the common theme going across the country right now. So right now, if, if you're looking at, right, let's say you're a business owner and you own all these different things and golf courses is one of them. And you're like trying to prioritize which one is just taking money away from me and which ones are making money. And you're prioritizing which ones do I cut and which ones do I keep? It's pretty rare that golf courses are one of those things that are moving the needle from a revenue standpoint, profit margin wise. I guarantee when, when they have tournaments coming up. So I'm look I'm looking every day to see when and where I can play my, my, uh, pro events. And I guarantee it's going to be as soon as that, and that says enter, they're going to be sold out because everyone wants to get out on that golf course and try and make the money back that they've lost. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, once again, though, I mean, that's a small piece of the overall puzzle. Oh, for sure, yeah. At a course. I mean, what it comes down to is beer and al- I mean, food and alcohol and, you know, all the other services and amenities because it's kind of like when you sell an app, right, or give away an app for free. They're not making money off the app. They're making money off these kids that are playing it and going, hey, I need to buy an extra 1500 gold to be able to buy this whatever the hell it is, right? It's on the upcharges, and that's typical with any business, and golf is not much different than that. I was going to say restaurants are in the same boat, that they're losing a lot of revenue because they're not able to sell alcohol. And some states have relaxed that rule that you can go up to the Mexican place up here and bring home a 32-ounce margarita, so they've relaxed rules you can take home. But that's almost the backbone of a lot of businesses is being able to sell alcohol and golf courses are not excluded from that. Well, there are, there are going to be, and you know, somebody commented on Twitter that, that for many courses, and this is absolutely true. Food and beverage is actually, it, it, they lose money on the deal, right? Because you, you pay these premium membership fees, more expensive clubs. And, and every day there's a, there's a breakfast buffet and a lunch buffet and an elaborate spread and, and all this stuff that, you know, is is baked into the membership fee, but you know, is the membership fee is is what it is to offset kind of all that stuff. So in those situations, if the members are, are playing golf, they might actually come out ahead because they're not spending all the money on food. But I think for a lot of the the smaller and mid tier clubs, which is, you know, I would argue still the heart of golf, if not the munis, right? Um, it's it's going to be. I think this is going to prove to be a, a very. It's very good. It, you know. Event. Good and bad, right? It's going to force people to maybe coming out of this shift to models like the goat, you know, or whatever it is, right? Where, where you you think about how golf is and you shift and and pivot a little bit, you know, it's forcing the hand a little bit to make changes that might help save you for the future. Yeah, I thought about that. This idea, right? The Goat Hill Park is kind of built as a community golf course, right? Where it's yeah, golf is golf is kind of what what brings everybody there, but there's lots of ancillary cool stuff that goes on and people just come to chill and hang out and have a good time and be, it's be cool hangs and family yeah and and so how do you how do you bring that vibe to a, to a golf course that was, was private or same private ain't many golf like courses that. right now got a cool cool hang vibe man right yeah so and and how do you i don't i don't know how you develop that culture necessarily but i think I think if you're looking for, if you're a struggling golf course looking for a successful model that that can carry down the road, yeah, man, make it make make your golf course the the central part of a community. Yep. Let's put a nightclub in a let's put a nightclub in there, a pole. Well, look, I mean, it's good. common sense, right? It's look at Goat Hill Park. Community, Harry. Look at Goat Hill Park. <laughs> look at community. Goat Hill Park. Take things from Top Golf. Take things from like the par three environment. But, yep. you know, those are things that everybody's like, hey, yeah, man, I'll go play a par three. Even non-golfers will do that, yep. but turn it into golf, to right? Non-golfers. I mean, yeah, and I think you got to do that. Like, you know, my course the last couple of years has run over the winter and even in the summer, a couple of big cornhole tournaments, which I'm like, I, I you know, I'm still like, I can't believe adult beanbag toss is a thing, but, but whatever. But it <laughs> was like... <laughs> highly, highly successful, a lot of interest, a lot of turnout, a lot of beers, that kind of thing. And obviously yeah. you can't do that right now. I mean, maybe you could, if you're eh, probably touching yeah, the bags, doesn't the bags, work. Yeah, yeah. yeah and but it's short term, it's, but it's also short term, long term stuff, right? Like all these are great ideas potentially. But like if you look at Goat Hill, that kind of developed a little bit organically too, right? Like it's a cultural thing and you can't turn culture. It's not a light it, yeah. switch you can you turn on and off. It. 
and you can't do it in response to a pandemic no. like hey hey this is you know this is a great idea so we're going to create this really cool organic culture and it's going to open at eight o'clock this saturday you can't force it but if you don't build the infrastructure for it it will never happen well and it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of passionate people behind it too to if you yeah, don't I, get it that way if you well, don't make any noise how are you ever going to get heard deep just, tips just, by harry nodwell boom boom here we go <laughs> Do you ever escape the ball lab to go play video games? Anybody? I know you don't play video games. I've been, I've been playing a lot of Hitman lately. Hitman 2. Mm, okay. I know. Tony and I were talking when this whole thing happened. He's like, man, I haven't played video games in a long time. He's like, I'm going to buy a game. I said, go for it. Hitman it was. And he's been playing a lot of it, he said. <laughs> it wasn't the PGA Tour 2K21? Not yet. But no? I, I remember playing I, Tiger Woods. Well, that's yeah. what I'm hearing, that the, the PGA Tour 2K21 is the best game since the Tiger game, right? Well, it's the I only know, Tiger game. game is the legend. <laughs> it's the only game, yeah. okay. Tiger like Woods was decent. Yeah, but so like video games, video games um, haven't taken golf very seriously. And to be honest with you, you know, maybe they're not too wrong. <laughs> but um, they had the Tiger game and then they had the Rory McIlroy game. And I think in 2014, and I think this comes out like May 14th. And it's got a teaser video that looks pretty damn good. <laughs> All right. Is it going to turn any of you into gamers? Uh, for my sake, I hope not you. I'm bored uh, of games. So. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't play FIFA? Uh, I, I, I played a couple of times and I am terrible at FIFA. Really? I'm just bad at video games in general. I'm one of those people that if I have the controller, I'll sit there and I feel like the harder I press the button, the faster the little guy's going to run. And that's not how it works. So I end up doing this. Yeah. And if I'm driving Mario Kart for sure. Now give me a Mario Kart and I'm all game for it. As long as I've got a couple of beers inside me and I get to do it. Hey, Tony, Chris, do you guys remember the Nintendo Summer Olympics? Yes. And using like the pin top to put your fingers on either side of the AMP. Right. Yes. Yes, that I what, remember that. that. And I don't have time for video games because it cuts into my, I like to spend a lot of time hand rolling all my burritos. And so <laughs> it cuts into that time and my hot tub time. So um, I just remember a thing called Nintendo Thumb. Does anybody remember that? Oh, yeah. Your thumb would get all, yeah. Thumb would be all, all jacked up. My video game experience was on the N64 and that like exclusively. And that was about oh, it. What was your favorite game? Mario Party. For sure. Mm. Yeah. I'm Chris, terrible at Mario Kart. I was a big Legend of Zelda guy. Ooh. I used to love Zelda. Were I mean, you into Warhammer that, too? What's that? Were you into Warhammer too? Mm, not as much into the Warhammer. Um, I still remember up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, BA, select, start. Was that Contra? <laughs> that was Contra, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That I'll, was tell, you, I'll tell you a quick story Contra about Legend of Zelda. Head. Um, my brother was seven years older than I was and we were a little bit reckless as kids and, um, he pulled the Ferris Bueller trick and <laughs> called in as my dad to the school the day Legend of Zelda got out and, uh, got me out of school and, um, picked me up, kind of had a, you know, hooded thing on so no one could see who he was. I rolled out, we went and picked up Zelda, played it, we stuck it in and I'll never forget when that thing popped up. I looked at the graphics and I looked at my brother and I was like, they are never going to get better than this at graphics. And he was like, you're right, man. <laughs> like, this is as good as it, this is as good as it gets. Top I said like, the same thing about the original Madden. I'm like, my God, this is, this is as good as video football can ever be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so are we about wrapping up today? God, I hope so. This is a long one. Yeah, yeah, this was a good one. We had a lot to talk about today. Yeah. We'll see how a 15 hour podcast does on, uh, on SoundCloud. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, everybody, people will watch 10 episodes of an hour-long show back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, but nobody will watch a 10-hour movie. Why is that? <laughs> that's you gotta get up a question. That's no, a, that's, a, that's a deep tip right there. That's, on that note. I need to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks a bunch. We'll see you next week. All right. We out. We out. We out. <laughs>